Welcome to Plato's Cave. I'm Jordan Myers, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Houston. You're listening to a reading group episode of the show, which means that in this episode, I discuss the paper For the Law, Neuroscience Changes Nothing and Everything by Jonathan Green and Jonathan Cohen with three non-philosopher friends, Adam, Giffen, and Brian, because philosophy shouldn't just be for philosophers. And so this is the final episode in the Moral Responsibility and Free Will series, and this is a great paper I think to conclude on. Uh, It's an investigation into the legal and societal and cultural uh, effects that debunking arguments from determinism cause. Uh, we talk about this paper at length, and um, and I think it's a really it's an in, it's an interesting paper. Uh, Green and Cohen dive into what discussing sort of debunking by determinism does to people's psychology, and how this will affect changes in the law. And so, you know, I think this is a good episode to kind of wrap up the series with uh, because it really kind of takes this philosophical question and exports it out into the real world and asks okay what effects will this have um if if it's you know spoken about and sort of absorbed in the popular culture so this is the end of the series uh as i said but i certainly don't think and and i'm sure that it won't be the end of uh discussing this topic in uh, uh, in various episodes of the podcast. And actually, um, in the next series that we'll be doing, uh, this topic comes up at length again in various um, political philosophy uh, episodes. So with that in mind, I hope that you enjoy our discussion of Green and Cohen's work. And I hope that you've enjoyed this series. It was a ton of fun recording it. My mind has changed on many issues. Uh, And I plan on circling back around to this both in my graduate studies and on the podcast. So I hope that you enjoy our final episode. So for this episode, we're doing a a pretty famous paper, actually, um, by uh, Jonathan Cohen and Joshua Green, uh, titled For the Law, Neuroscience Changes Nothing and Everything. And this was published in 2004. Brian, before we started the call, you said you liked this paper, right? Um, I just thought it was like almost like felt like an overview of mm. general feelings I had towards free will uh, over the past couple episodes. So okay, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it really um, added anything to the conversation, but I think it just kind of broad or yeah, broadened kind of like different scenarios. Like they, they bring mm. up the one case study, which is the uh, oh, what was it, the Brazil boys or whatever? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah uh, that's a good. I, one. I don't know. I just think it's just an interesting case. So, there, yeah. there was a lot was of a actually. Yeah, there was some cool intersections here between like social psych work and cognitive psych work that I, I was not aware of, which was kind of cool to go over. Um, that, that's one area I thought that it added to the conversation. I, yeah. I actually I liked um, the kind of frameworks or at least like the models that I'm viewing this through, like uh, of folk psychology and mm. folk physics. Because I, I, that actually resonated well with me, and especially, you know, um, how that tied into the conclusion, you know, just regarding, like, you know, I'm not really jumping the gun here, but, you know, can people truly, you know, kind of issue or let go of, like, these retributivism, you know, beliefs, and it's like, well, 
even if it's deeply ingrained uh, psychologically, yes, but in specific cases. Mm-hmm. So like in, like in the same way that he says, like, you know, in folk physics, um, there are intuitions we don't have, but that we can learn, but then apply in certain areas mm. that are, you know, that are needed. But then um, we can do the same thing with folk psychology, where it's like, you know, we have an intuitive sense of free will. <clears throat> Yet when it comes to our legal systems, we could possibly set aside, you know, our intuitions in favor of an evidence supported, Mm. um, non, you know, retributivist. Yeah. So (laughs) that part, that part actually like really hit home to me because that honestly changing your, uh, lay notions about physics is essentially what getting a major in mechanical engineering is. You know what I mean? Like I, it actually does. It's kind of crazy to like, like your intuitions actually get changed. Like you don't see things the same way anymore. Um, when you take all of those different classes on mechanics and, you know, um, just all the different you know forms of mechanics, whether it's fluids or thermal or whatever, right? Like you should just have different yeah. intuitions, which is kind of cool. I would, I would sure. imagine that's true of any scientific field. Yeah. It kind of has to be it's almost learning about it's, it's like the, just about learning about the nature of some yeah. set of things. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be, it honestly would be weird if it wasn't that way. You know, like you learn something, but yet you're into it. Like you have to like yeah. consistently correct your intuitions after learning something yeah. and really like, <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of odd. The religious biologist. Mm. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, I just like the example they use, which was the, um, a ball moving the in curved. a circle, yeah. you know, or like an, on some sort of curved track. And when it leaves mm. the track, you know, a majority of people think that it continues to curve. And it's like, to be honest, it just brought me back to like 10th grade when I took physics. And I was like, <laughs> honestly, that was kind of like a mind blowing thing for me too. that, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Like where, yeah. you know, you're just like, there's no longer any force acting upon it. So it's no. not going to, it's not going to change direction. And I'm like, no, but yeah. I, I, I know, I remember I had that intuition that it would continue to curve. So, mm-hmm. um, so I, I just liked that example. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and it almost, I liked, I liked how they played that. I mean, th- that they talked about that after they had talked about the anthropomorphizing of the triangle and the circle. Right. And it's almost like, yes, yeah, yeah pe- people, it seems like people are almost, um, yeah, it's like if you if you like when you have the intuition that the ball is going to continue curving, you're almost like pro- I feel like you're projecting a psychology onto the ball or something, right? It's like, well, it's continue. I don't know. It's like you, you're not actually looking at it in terms of physics. You're almost looking at it in terms of like if you were the ball, like like what would you continue? Yeah, it's, it's something like that. I don't, you know, it's not exactly I, that. What is? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Can you can you elaborate? Um. So like okay, like so it, as if you were the ball. Yeah. So okay. So like when we're when like this was kind of the point that they were making about when we anthropomorphize movement and action, right? Like we we tend to because they talked about that cool example where oh, like they just showed yeah. the film of like <laughs> like a triangle cornering a circle or whatever, and pe- people would actually like project. People even like they they even said people reported like projecting like retributivist impulse onto the triangle for like cornering the square. You're like, they what like, a bully! Yeah, yeah, they call it a bully. Like, <laughs> the intuition might deserve to be punished, you know, be like made into a square, <laughs> punish, <laughs> punish yeah. the triangle. <laughs> um, and and yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, uh, Giffen, what, what did what you, you think of the paper generally? Yeah. yeah, 
I enjoyed the paper for sure. Um, I like what they brought up. It was, you know, pretty straightforward and succinct. And um, it explored a lot of intuitions in a very, very practical realm, which I enjoyed. Yeah. And you know what I loved about this paper? So maybe my favorite part about this paper is um, Josh. I don't know if Joshua Green, I think he's done other work in this area, not just this paper with, with free will intuitions. But the thing that I love about this work is one of my biggest problems with what I've read of Dan Dennett, which is not obviously close to like all of his work, but I read, you know, he has half of the book with Greg Caruso, who I talked with on the podcast, right. Called um, just desserts. And I've listened to a couple interviews with him and read a few reviews with him. Right. And the problem is, is like he, from what I understand, it, it almost is like he, he pretends that no one has libertarian impulses or like uh, intuitions. He's almost like, He's almost dismissive of the idea that people do actually think that they have this type of free will and want this type of free will. And so like, I, I love this paper because it really shows the importance of, um, <laughs> you know, what this paper does is it really shows the importance of knowing the scope of, of the conversation with respect to who you're talking to, right? Like when I'm talking to you guys, we don't have to start with, with, battling back libertarian free will. Like none of us believe in that. But to pretend that you don't have to do that with nearly every kind of non-philosophical person you talk to is I think deeply confused. Like I think Dennett has maybe just been in the ivory tower too long and like forgets that people actually do believe in like book intuitions i think was a very good conception that the paper brought up i don't know if it completely originated in this paper but at the very least they perfected it yeah i i i I, I, I really liked the language actually that was um i'm not sure we've ever used this language before but i i really appreciated the the language used to describe the layperson's view of an agent is in the sense Mm. an uncaused causer Oh, I, li- I loved that. I thought that was great because I'm like, that is actually exactly how people view. Yeah, a lot you of know, good I, language that like, yeah, previously yes. I, you know, give me a thousand years. I never would have like <laughs> brought it like that, you know, well together. Well, that's only because you're caused in the wrong way. <laughs> uh, true. <laughs> you're not determined by the good. <laughs> only, uh, only the only past. The <laughs> So here's a question for you. Would you rather people view um not have this folk psychology and have this mm. other more elevated view of psychology? With in it, terms of having a cause causer? With it, this is like <clears throat> so that question well, maybe real quick, can I give like a 30,000 foot view of just kind of like what they say in the paper and like the t- the title like the title really does spell it out and Adam hit the majority of it, but just, just to kind of try to give a, a concise summary of the paper. So yeah. when they say neuroscience changes nothing, which is like the first part of the paper, they mean to say that, okay, all of these developments that neuroscience is bringing forth with understanding the brain theoretically should not make a difference because our legal system is not presupposing um, that people aren't determined at all. Right. Like they're basically just acknowledging that like determinism is true and therefore any behavior or thought process will have a brain correlate. Right. So like this folk intuition that 
somehow you know if you have free will it can't like free action can't be reflected in brain activity is like just nonsensical right um but then the second half of the title you know neuroscience changes everything is that they're they're going to argue that okay even though people shouldn't have had this idea in the first place and our law is our system of law should not be theoretically grounded in that um the fact that people's intuitions do and will change will actually affect the law. So it will change everything for the law. Um, but just, yeah. So, so just with that on the table, sorry, what was, repeat your question. Cause it was a good one, Brian. Oh, uh, what did you think about, um, you know, let's say then instead you could make it wave a magic wand and make the common folk kind of like, instead of, subscribing to folk psychology is subscribing to like the more compatibilist like um kind of having that bit of wisdom in there and of, of having a caused causer instead of an uncaused causer mm. would you want that or would you not want that i mean yeah i would um okay and it would honestly be kind of weird if like it would be really weird if i didn't say yes you know like um because yeah, then, that's what I was, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, then I would have to have some weird cognitive stance where it's like I think I'm right, and I also think that there are happy I, benefits from it, but I don't want people to know that for some reason, you know. But I think a, I, the reason I ask that is because I think a lot of people want to cling to that intuition that they have, and I was just mm. curious if anyone mm -hmm. kind of felt well, that, I, fell into well, that I, category. I just think the paper makes a good distinction, to be honest. Where it's like I don't think people need to, you know, you know, wholesale give up like that attitude or that perspective, you know, in daily life. Like I still, like we've had talks at this point about viewing others agentically, right? Yes. Like I, like so mm -hmm. like I, I still want to preserve that. But when it comes to like legal systems, I think it's important to recognize that, oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's time to throw out retributivism and you can only really do that when um, I think when you recognize that, people ultimately don't have free will and that the concept mm. of free will is incoherent. Um, so I actually, I, I do want to make one point though about this paper. Okay. I feel like more responsibility and free will often like that the lines blurred in this paper, they were many, many yeah. that, even, even hearing that, you know, that statement by myself right there, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I, I was more yeah. along more or less like following, you know, like, much of the verbiage of this paper, mm. but I, I did see a conflation there. So I would probably amend what I said there. Um, yes. Th but... This paper assumes that you are necessary. This paper assumes a, a one-to-one -one link between free will and moral responsibility. Like you can be like, you can be an incompatibilist about like, like I'm, I actually fall into this camp. Like, <clears throat> um, like I would say I'm in, in like a hard incompatibilist about, determinism and free will but not for um like I, i'd look like i come out of the wash looking much more like a compatibilist at this point between determinism and moral responsibility and they seem to act like that you could never make a reasoned distinction there although i guess for like for the for the sake of this paper I would probably describe myself as a hard incompatibilist when it comes hmm. to moral responsibility free will and the law you know what you i mean know. like 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 no, like, like like yeah. like once we're no, like no longer talking about just like interpersonal relationships yes. and <clears throat> you know um 
just the values that constitute those relationships and, and the attitudes. I, I mean, if we're looking at law, then yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just a hard incompatible. Yes. Uh, that's why so, you heard me hesitate there when I, you know, I said I kind of come out of the wash as looking like a compatibilist because, yeah, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's all in the details of like what we mean there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But so, okay, you know, this paper, this, this paper made me kind of, um, <clears throat> Think about. Do you remember um, in the? Oh, this was before your time, Brian, in the in the series. But um, well, not before your time. But you were just you were just out for that part of this uh, the series. <laughs> I was but an infant. Yeah. <laughs> you, you were you were still being caused. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was in my causing stages. You, yeah, you hadn't graduated to your contra-causal stage that you're in now. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Truly deserving of retributive punishment. <laughs> <laughs> not even praise though <laughs> it's like the, it's like the, the reverse of the wolf paper uh, you're, you're only fit for punishment not for praise <laughs> uh, the master the the masochist daydream <laughs> um yeah, 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 masochist. Like, read that wolf paper. Like, damn, <laughs> masochistic asymmetry. That's the next paper. <laughs> that's my that's my rebuttal. <laughs> um, uh, what was I saying? Uh, oh, you know what? Like, Watson has that like wonderful turn of phrase where he says, you know, whenever we discover the de- you remember, he laid out the like the case of Robert Harris about how he did those heinous things, and then he then then he shows you the um like the circumstances of his upbringing. And he says, you know, the intuition will change from that evil bastard to no wonder, you know, he kind of, he has that like nice phrase of no, no wonder what he did. And I feel like that intuition is, is exactly what green and Cohen were talking about in this paper. Um, Cause I think he's, Oh, this might be totally apocryphal. Um, but I swear if it's not green, it's someone else like close to this work, but there have been studies done where when you show when you do sort of pull back the veil as to the specific cause, people's intuitions do change there. But it's so, but it's so odd, honestly, because like, you know, so here, okay, here's what I would like to know. I don't know about the, I don't know the status of this empirical work. Because <clears throat> um, I wonder if there's a bit of like, I, I wonder if there's intuitions that are, implicitly hinging on almost something like mechanism ownership here because so here's here's what i th- i think i understand to be true about the the like uh, literature in this area so when you sh- sh- give people an example of someone doing something heinous right it could be the charles whitman case then you then you tell them something like he had a brain tumor their intuitions seem to change as watson says from that evil bastard to oh well no wonder like it wasn't really him doing it then. And they even use that language in this paper, Green and Cohen, right? But because, I mean, obviously the four of us get that there, there are causes. Everything is, everything is caused, right? I wonder if people's intuitions, and this is just, I don't know if this study has been done or not, but I wonder if people's intuitions change when you say, uh, you know, so Charles Whitman did the thing he did, <clears throat> But don't you understand? It was just because his brain fired in precisely this way, and you you describe the way his neurons were firing or whatever. But it's not actually, but it's not actually wrong. Or that. that hold on, I gotta walk back that that phrasing. 
um, it's not an aberration from how a normal brain would fire. It seems to me like people's intuitions wouldn't change there if they understood that it's not different than how a brain would normally fire. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think no way. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I kind of, um, I liked the language that Fisher used when he said that, um, a, a component mechanism ownership is, you know, one kind of way of assessing is, you know, would this be a mechanism that I myself would own? Mm. You know, like, so I think we, and when you talk about just a regularly functioning brain, you know, even if you broke it down into neurons firing, I think most people would say, well, you know, this is, I have a brain that functions mechanistically in a similar way. So I, you know, um, take mechanism ownership of my own brain. Therefore I would take, you know, ownership of a brain like that. You know what I mean? And maybe it's easier to see with like a tumor or brain damage where it's like, I, I wouldn't own a brain like that. So <laughs> you know, in that sense, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're actually making me think of maybe this is where the, like the real importance of that moderate reasons responsiveness comes in though. Cause I'm thinking about another study that actually Cohen was uh, involved in. Um, if it's the same Cohen, it, it, there might be two Jonathan. No, I think it's the same Jonathan Cohen. Um, he this was this was uh, the the neuroscience study done by him and Sam Harris um, in his doctoral. No, no, no. This was well after he completed his PhD. This was in like 2016, I think. This study was done, um, where like I think I've probably mentioned this to you before, Adam. At at least maybe to Brian. Um, it was like a long time ago that I remember talking about this. I don't remember who was on the podcast or not. But like, okay, so there's this there's this um, really cool finding where if you present so they say they did this in california and they took the they took a sample of 42 i think liberals um self-professed liberals on the political spectrum right and um what they did is they asked them to rate their confidence in various questions on a scale from one to seven right and they asked them their confidence on political questions and apolitical questions just very pedestrian ones and then while they were in an fMRI machine, they were presented with counter evidence for only their strongly held beliefs, both political and apolitical, right? So one was, you know, I, I believe climate change is a real threat uh, to, to humanity or something. And they pre- presented them with counter evidence showing that like, you know, and it doesn't have to be good counter evidence um, that like, you know, there's variation across, you know, uh, the centuries with the Earth's um, fluctuation and yeah in climate thank you and in temperature um and so that's an example for the political questions and then for the apolitical ones they also showed them um so they would ask you know on a scale from one to seven how confident are you that that thomas edison invented the light bulb and for the people who said six or seven they presented them with counter evidence showing that like well actually it was nikolai tesla who invented the incandescent filament and that's really what the light bulb is and right so all the, this counter evidence and they scanned their brains and then they asked them to self report their confidence on the same questions after receiving the counter evidence and as you might expect for politicized questions people changed their mind less than a than a political questions but interestingly also the there were two areas in their brain that were uh 
like massively more activated on political questions. And those areas were related to self-identification and emotional reasoning uh, for political questions as opposed to apolitical questions. And so, sorry, that was long-winded, but like, so that study, because yeah, it's a normally functioning brain. Um, and, and <laughs> you would presumably own a mechanism of a normally functioning brain. Like I, I don't think any of us are under the assumptions that we wouldn't fail that test too, essentially, right? Um, however, it seems like that condition is almost failing some like moderate reasons responsive um, uh, requirement con condition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and I, I think that, yeah, I don't know. So that, so knowing that information then when someone is presented with political counter evidence, they don't change their mind. Then that is sort of an undermining. I get, I do get the undermining intuition there, even though it is a normally functioning brain. And I wonder if that intuition is resting on a deeper intuition that whatever process you're using to form beliefs or change beliefs has to be moderately reasons responsive in the way Fisher says. Yeah. I mean, I'm, like when thinking about that, there just seems to be this just discontinuity where there are moments when you could assess someone as reasons responsive or moderately reasons responsive, but then, then there are moments where, you know, whether it's for emotional reasons, and I think that would classify as an emotional reason. I'm, oh yeah, I'm, I know very little about the brain, but <laughs> like when you know, I don't, but when it comes to you know something like like a political question, yeah, sure. Like I, I think mm. you know whatever you know those sections that were activated, like you said, um, just, what was it like? Uh, it was the amygdala and identification the prefrontal cortex, I think. Yeah. The amygdala and the, whatever one you said there. Um, I mean, I don't know the brain you do, but <laughs> no, no, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 know, I know you've studied yeah. it a little bit, but a little um, is the, is the right word there. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, but you, you could, we pointed to other examples where there are just, emotional overrides mm. that you would no longer call someone reasons responsive in that moment. Yeah. So I feel like that's just generally a fault of the, you know, conception of, mm. you know, reasons responsiveness where it's like, um, how does emotion play into this? Like how mm -hmm. is someone reasons responsive when they're sufficiently emotional? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it seems, and it seems like at least our intuitions are no. Yeah. Um, Ooh. Oh shoot. Brian might be kind of spotty here. <clears throat> um, him, what are your thoughts on this here? Um, uh, this being what are we backing up to like Jordan's original uh, statement or like what you were just addressing? Just generally like the failing of, you know, reasons responsive or moderate reasons responsiveness here. And yeah, it definitely tugs on intuitions, right? Like, I mean, the fact that someone, I mean, this is both like a time, you know, differentiated factor and also just like a, um, with respect to certain subjects as like the study seemed to describe, um, kind of factor. Mm -hmm. So it, I mean, the same person in the same kind of, you know, testing chamber seems to be, you know, possibly reasons responsive in this, in one question and not in the next, then again, again, with like the third question, just based on the subject matter, yeah. like, is that person in total reasons responsive or do you need to you know, contextualize each individual assessment of reasons responsiveness. But also mm. whenever you kind of consider that, like if is motion, if motion is involved, if they become not reasons responsive, 
or do they lack their kind of responsibility? Like, you know, passionate murder feels like that. Those are the things that we might want to um, hold people responsible for, especially if like it was very specific to that kind of moment um, or subject that mm. invoked like the emotions. Like, like in total, you can say like they were recently re- or, or reasons responsive before and after. Just like a very thin moment mm. um, where like the reasons responsiveness, like you might claim, kind of went away, but like they seem kind of normal maybe even during the act it might be indistinguishable mm. so i don't know it, it's really tugs on intuitions that that example you gave though is i think like the absolute beauty of <clears throat> green and cohen's conclusion where they say that you know and and i i think there's like a they're, they're being a little bit general because obviously they're too psych well i know green i think chiefly they're psychologists um i know green has like philosophy in his background too but like um, they, they have that it's towards the end of the paper. They have that phrase, you know, mo- some type of moral responsibility can remain. And the, like the example that you give is, is a perfect example of why for purposes of the law, I think retribution serves no role because for that example, it's, it's, it purely comes down to just objective, you know, as in the objective attitude, like things that we can that we can reasonably believe about that person. Like if we think that he is prone to, uh, to become emotional like that in the future, then that's a good reason to jail him. Right. Um, it's yeah. not a, that's not a good reason to punitively jail him, you know, just right. like really make him suffer in jail, but it's like, a but good just reason. consequentially. Yeah. Quarantine. Um, yeah. You can yeah. imagine like an investigation of his psyche is like, this must've been like, like he had a enormous barriers to even any minuscule amount of violence, but just like the circumstances kind of all conspired in a perfect storm to like, mm-hmm. you know, barely hop that barrier into like, you know, his actions. It's like that person may be like the least prone to violence on earth. Just like the circumstances were so overwhelming. You know, you can imagine that kind of situation. Like he will never commit violence again with a very high probability. Like what purpose does like putting him away for 15 years serve? It's why I love Wolf's phrase about like the world has to conspire in your favor. Like it's so true. Like the like the world has to conspire in your favor for all of these things. Like the it's a humbling world, perspective, really. Yeah, dude. Like the world didn't conspire in that guy's favor, you know. And and like, and if uh, like he he'd sorry, I have like a weird half sneeze coming up. Bless you. <laughs> that, that is torturous <laughs> just being edged uh, by a sneeze <laughs> dude giffen have you noticed a difference about me during this uh this this podcast here <laughs> uh what are you alluding He's to now Some reasons sort of... responsive <laughs> i've emerged from the dark i i would actually stage during like the past week <laughs> It would be more accurate right now to call me less reasons responsive. <laughs> what are you under the influence of, Adam? Uh, it's actually the opposite. I gave up <laughs> nicotine um, and... Impossible. It, no, Surely you mean a certain form of nicotine, but mm-hmm. another more aggressive form has replaced it. <laughs> well, no, but it's... But yes. I, it's, it, it, it's 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 honestly the worst, it's one of the worst feelings i've ever felt in my life you're I suffering can, from withdrawal right now basically it, it's terrible because like it, there's so many different factors involved like one this would be like a quick just interlude here but i have to tell them because we're going to cut one, the podcast down just to this anecdote <laughs> one 
your IQ drops like six to seven points during this withdrawal period. It's no, no, it's a fact because here's That's the thing: crazy. like easy. Adam dropped just barely below reasons responsiveness. Just now. <laughs> no, no, seven no, points no, were the it, only barrier. No, it's genuinely true because the thing is like. No, I believe you. That's actually my, kind of absurd. My my concentration is so split. It's so split. Like it's, um, it's no, terrible. I'm, it's terrible. I know exactly what you mean. So that's that's one. And another is like I can feel it in my teeth. There's like this like gnawing sensation through my mouth my gums my teeth and it I feels honestly like... didn't know that there was that kind of like mechanical response like yes. in your physiology it's, I had no God, idea dude. it's terrible and it's and it feels like I can't even describe what it feels like at the center of my brain I, I think I think it would be just like if I had to like even just drop an analogy it would be like not eating for two days and then being seated at a table and being like presented with your favorite meal, but you may not touch it. Like Jesus. that's yeah. It's when did this start? Like, have you been <laughs> suffering for days on end, or is this like a, a it's twenty first of October pact you made with yourself? <laughs> no, this was like I don't know. This like, was about two weeks ago. Holy shit! You're feeling that bad after two weeks? Yeah. Yeah, oh it's God. well because the thing is like I've had to sort of like wean myself off of it because oh, the thing okay. is because the thing is I I no hard stops uh, I, I I quit cold turkey immediately but then I was just like sweating I, I could I could I, I couldn't function I let I literally could not like, engage in typical brain function but now I've finally diminished myself at this point to like nearly nothing and I'm about to lose my mind. All right. But like, the mind will return. So, I, I appreciate will. that I'm, anecdote. I know, but I'm I'll sorry. I'll keep that in this. mind when I make judgments during the rest of this call. <laughs> no, I'm sorry for this, but I, I had, I had to explain myself because I'm like twitchy as shit over here right now. So <laughs> problem. I was going to say that the difference I noticed was that I can see you clearly, not through the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> the, the fog machine is broke down. Even in a deterministic world, I am still fit for ridicule. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll be damned if any determinism is going to take away ridicule. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a compatibilist about, about ridicule and determinism. Yeah, <laughs> the strongest kind of compatibilist. Not, not quite a reactive attitude. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but objective attitude from here on out, Adam. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. Returning to my overall question we were kind of talking about, I just, I almost wonder, it'd be kind of, if, the, if these studies haven't been done, these would be really cool interdisciplinary studies to see exactly how well people's intuitions track what, you know, we would think, or like what I would think given a more flushed out like view of this, you know, um, are the right intuitions to have. Jordan, I yeah. this is a random question that just popped in my mind. But did that study that you were referencing um involve like any juveniles? Like was there a comparative that's a good there between juveniles and adults? Because that sounds super interesting to me right almost now. Certainly almost certainly not. Almost certainly I was gonna say yeah. you probably would have mentioned it because that like it almost sounds like a well, I would I don't know if I'm gonna say a scientific um basis, but like that almost sounds like a test you could do to see how like developed a child is. Like is his reasons responsiveness like kind of or lack thereof, you know, subject. Like oh, you were asking, wait, for the questions. You, you asked me for the, um, for the Harris Cohen study. Yeah. 
Oh, uh, yeah, uh, 100% not. <clears throat> it was just okay. all adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I think that might be an interesting... That hasn't been done already. I have no idea. I'm sure it hasn't. Well, because it's. I think it's hard to do stuff with juveniles. Yeah. <laughs> I, I work in pediatrics. It is certainly harder to do things <laughs> with juveniles. There's, yeah. no cons- there's no really consent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just I'm going sent. to quote that out of context. <laughs> so often. <laughs> I look forward to being canceled. <laughs> quote from Giffen, it's hard to do things mm-hmm. with juveniles. There is no consent. Check, check what's trending on Twitter in three days. Let's just say that. <laughs> Noted. No, actually, though, Jordan, your intuition is 100% correct there. Um, uh, what was my intuition? Oh, that like it's hard to get like we're with, oh, work with oh, juveniles oh. yeah 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 i i wonder so like i think it'd be super cool to do you'd almost have to do maybe a set of studies where you now th- this was i'm sorry this was going back not to the harris cohen study that i was talking about but the study that I, I i'm like i think that i know exists but not really where people's intuitions were tested on like um to use Wolf's locution, wh- whether people were determined in the right way or not oh yeah so <laughs> i was referencing yeah. the harris cohen one but I mean, that's a good one too. Um, and yeah, like I think it would be, I don't know, it'd be really cool to see because you wouldn't want to commit the naturalistic fallacy in doing those studies and just say that whatever people's intuitions are, if they track some pattern, were the right thing. But it would be cool to see whether people's intuitions would align with kind of like a Fisher mechanism ownership and reasons responsive. You Actually, know what I mean? There's a lot of different parameters you can kind of check with that kind of a study. Like you can check like kind of between like cultures mm. too like yeah does, i mean it, the fact that this is concerning like law and is you know he discusses like the fact that intuitions of people are important in kind of like the conversation yeah that might be different between cultures yeah i, I that is and um, influence and like have practical influence therefore yeah i you know you you made me think like i had a little note in the margin i wrote down like yeah like they, they actually make a good point where they talk about how intuitions are important for the law because like they're right. There is no platonic form of the law, right? Like it does, it does come down to sort of our intuitions and what kind of society we want to create with it. Like there mm-hmm. is no deontological right law. Um, you know, Kantians email me if you, if you, if you want to like quibble about that, but like on my assumption, there is no such thing as that. Or your um, questions in the chat. Do you, do you think uh, retributivism makes sense given that most people have the intuition for retributive justice in the sense that the law as it is now serves the intuitions of the people at large. Very good I mean? question. Do I know, you know exactly. what I mean, you know what I mean by that. Great like, question. Yeah. yeah. I say no and a hard no, but really? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an automatic hard no that if we have a legal system that doesn't align with how most people view justice being served, that's a, an immediate no. Consequentially, that sounds like it's disruptive. It. Oh, sorry, Brian. Please. I think I'm just stealing this away right now. It's all good. I don't think viewing. I, I, I just. I guess I don't see. Just because the general, the the average person views the legal system in a certain way, doesn't mean we should entirely subscribe to that, right? Because I mean, then we're just. I mean, I, I, here's what I'd say. If there was like, we did it in this two-step process where it's just like, we start teaching this in education more broadly to kind of transition into a future where that's possible, that might be a more elegant solution than just saying, hey, let's make this transition. 
Well, but but I, I think it's important like when like when viewing this though, like keep in mind as it's said in the paper here, it's not just when we say like the average person here, we're not talking about average intelligence. We're talking about, you know, people, you know, all across society often mm. highly intelligent the vast majority you know, of people yeah the vast majority of people have yes. a very different conception right of, of, of a justice that our legal system serves so if you know there are a select few people who i'm not saying it, it, i mean this would be right obviously that you know like retributivism is a is a a poor model to operate under Mm-hmm. And that a consequentialist, you know, perspective in model is just a, a, you know, a preferable one. But I'm just wondering, like, there, most people's sense of justice would not be, be would conserved, not, would yeah. not be served at that point. It's like the two-step process of like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, like, I think we all agree that the, like, the consequentialist way is the more correct way objectively. <laughs> Mm-hmm. without without regard to like social impacts which i mm-hmm. think that's what you're alluding um but if we were to i think i think that is not i think you at one point said that's just like this is the average person is not uh no notion of that's not talking about intelligence not iq and i wasn't either i was talking about because i think with education it doesn't it, it's about promoting different ways of thinking and this so if you promote a different way of thinking then you can translate transition into like that um more objective approach to law oh i i agree with you i i i'm not against actually um influencing people's intuitions such that they align with ours like regarding consequentialism and the projection mm-hmm. of retributivism but i'm just right. saying as it currently stands most people don't have that intuition mm. in adopting a legal oh, system sure. predicated on rejecting retributivism i i in theory it sounds nice um but like i i just like i wonder what the fallout is you may say like okay but that is kind of built into the consequentialist point of view at that but but that's kind of my question, right? Like, like, what is the fallout when you've got a society mm. yeah, that, what, like, that doesn't actually like share the same sense of justice? You, you know, it, <clears throat> I, I almost have this suspicion that people, because it's like, okay, so people totally have this, this impulse and desire for revenge. Right. And that's like at the basis of retributivism. Honestly, though, I kind of wonder if that's like a this is like a John Stuart Mill point. But like, I wonder if they're more like rationally enlightened selves actually wouldn't think that like if they were able to sample both experiences, like the experience of wanting and getting revenge versus in a like this is we're talking purely legal here. You know what I mean? Taking the objective attitude and just and just being able to actually view someone as unfortunately determined you know like the world didn't cooperate i i, I don't know like do, doesn't it seem in a legal sense that obviously even that same person just that both versions of him he'd be better off if he saw saw it in the consequentialist non-desert framework right so like <clears throat> that i don't know because because you're totally right. Like if the law just switched right now, 
I think I think people would have like a certain sort of suffering, but without being able to put it more sophisticated in a more sophisticated manner than this, it's almost like the wrong type of suffering. Like it's it's a type of suffering that they ought not experience. Uh, what are you referring to? I'm sorry. I think I got lost at the end. The, the suffering of a Who's lack they? of uh, uh, like p- people um, in the legal system who have been wronged and like want revenge. Ah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's almost like they're they like I grant that they do want dessert, but they're wrong to want dessert. And I think they'd actually be happier if they didn't desire dessert. That's like kind of suffering. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I mean, that's true. But it's just like we're talking about like a change in the legal system and how people would respond and mm-hmm. um, without their intuition being changed, yeah, their, yeah, their yeah. intuition's changing. So, so I'm talking about like, so like think of like something like the Chauvin trial, mm. right? Oh I yeah. Mean, no you, institutional I, I, so support. I, that's a collapse. good example. Cause it pulls our, even our yeah. intuitions. Like I do feel the retributive impulse towards that guy. Yeah. But, and also you, you know, like an entire country, you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm not, True. I'm not saying that people wouldn't view that differently <sighs> given a different legal system. Right, because people yeah, would yeah, view yeah. it. I mean, we don't know the counterfactual entirely, but of I'm course, just saying, like, yeah, like obviously people would view it differently. But I just wonder what the the country's well, so reaction Adam, at large what, would be if they didn't share our intuitions. So, wait, Giffen, real quick. Yeah, yeah, I guess my problem, not it's not a problem, but like my follow up question is because the problem is is that we're assuming on a consequentialist basis it would look different. Like, what what did he get? Twenty five years in prison or something? I, I can't remember. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. But like, but for real on a consequential. So like uh, the problem is, is we, we need to know like all the details of him and the case and everything like this. Like this is a problem with consequentialism is that you need to know a lot of details, right? Like right. deontology is easy. He did deserve it or not. Right. But, um, but like if, if it came out of the wash, I don't know, like it's, it seems completely plausible that the outcome is consequentially justified for him to be locked away for like 25 years or whatever. Well, do you know what I, I mean? Think, I feel like Adam's claim, Adam, correct me <clears> if I'm wrong, was more about like not in within a kind of certain trial or, you know, case, but rather like if the Supreme Court like came out and said like, hey, we're going to like our interpretation mm. of like the laws, like the system of laws we have is going to be non-retributive and like ex- basically let's put out a brief statement kind of like that they were explaining you know, what the purpose of the law is, I think people would just react very, so very poorly. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, there would be a huge kind of like gut punches and like defensive behavior and I mean, it would destroy in the institutional integrity. So from a consequent, uh, consequentialist uh, frame of view, I'm imagining like, if that's your question, Adam, like what if we just change that now where everyone's intuitions are not aligned with kind of, um, you know, ours, the institutional um, uh, support would just collapse. And then the consequences of having a system of laws where not only at that point, you're beyond like the, whether it, the system of laws should be retributive or consequentialist, you don't have that system to begin with. <laughs> you don't have the capacity to make that kind of question. So I don't yeah, know if that given, I, given, I think you got it right in the sense that, yeah, I, I do believe I, I agree with everything you said there. And I also just want to reiterate, I think that would be the ultimate goal to reject retributivism, but at the same time, mm. give people's intuitions to change first. But Jordan, I do want to respond to what you said too. Because yeah. I, I also think like, I don't know. I mean, this is this going to be entirely just like, um, this is subjective at this point, but 
I, I almost feel like what you just said there was like, almost like, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I got a sense that, that there was almost like a sacrificing of Chauvin at the altar in a sense that for like, for the 25 years, because I think the 25 years could be justified in a retributive model where it's like, okay, like it, it's, it's not purely consequential in the sense that he's, you know, um, this is some sort of deterrence or he's mm-hmm. more, you know, this gives us some insight into his character. Therefore he's like going to do this again. Therefore 25 years saying, in prison. Yeah. yeah. But I, I don't think you could justify that for, I mean, for uh, 25 years in prison. Well, I think I, you I can think, justify life in prison on a consequentialist basis. Like if it's for purely quarantine. Yes, yeah. Correct. Correct. But, but that's not, yeah. but that wasn't the, the driving force behind his sentence. Oh, totally. Totally. But, but I'm just so, saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was just saying that like the outcome can look the same in certain, in very certain cases. And like, but the problem is I just don't know enough of the details about like the Chauvin case to know if that would be a, a case wherein it would look the same in both um, like schemas or not, Do you know, yeah, I made the point I, poorly, but, but I think the reason I brought it up was because I'm arguing it wouldn't look the same. Oh, it, in that I, particular like, case, it might not. Yeah. I, cause, cause I, I think that's why it makes it interesting. It's not that it would appear the same yeah, either yeah, yeah. way and therefore people at large would be satisfied. I'm saying that like, I feel uh, like you know, 25 years. I mean, you're making a, I, um, you're I'm not saying a, you're yeah, pulling at our intuitions yeah. towards a lesser sentence. If we take away the retributivism, is that what you're trying to like get at? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good one. Well, yeah, good, oh, so I'll, example. I'll meet you there. Like I, I think that now I don't know, but it's plausible that consequentially all that needed to be done there was like strip the guy of his badge, like just allow him not to hurt anyone again. Yeah, let him work in like kind of a uh, mall or something, right? Yeah, or, or but but you know, so you say okay, but that has no deterrent factor, and there's good reason to believe that this is a great case in which to highlight a deterrent factor. Okay, yeah. throw on five years that, or like what whatever, you know, there's going to be a ton. There's going to be you know weeks, months of actual investigation into what sentence it will be, and then how is it kind of laid out, right? But I, but I'm. Yeah, where it gets very tricky. Yeah, I'll I'll meet you. You know, at any point in the spectrum, you want to meet there. But what if, like, which people will get people get mad about that? Like, people get mad about me even saying that. Like, he, like people, people, I'm sure listening will feel that retributive impulse. Like, like what he deserves more than that. And it's like, well, he doesn't deserve. Does society deserve like the negative repercussions of that decision? Though it might, yeah, exactly. exactly. Like it might be a good thing for him to get more time, but he doesn't deserve more time. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think that that's another strange thing that that was brought up in the paper here. I mean, it's just like from like Mm -hmm. a consequentialist framework here. I mean, like even what you just said there. So, could it benefit society at large if he were to get the twenty-five years, even if? you know, like maybe consequentially for, uh, you know, it, it, you know, in terms of like the direct sphere of who he personally can influence, it wouldn't make sense to give him 25 years, but, yeah. uh, you know, but kind of viewing his case in society at large, it <laughs> you're actually tweak- might- <laughs> You're tweaking uh, the magistrate and the mob moral. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. Yes. You're, you're tweaking yes. that. Um, it's more than just for him specifically. Experiment. You need yeah. to really look at, I mean, that eventually will, you know, be informed by people's intuitions too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, the consequentialism in, involves that, folds that in. Um, but this is, oh, this is, 
I was just saying like we're we're really edging into just like straight up ethics here where like because I think Adam's laying out a position that I agree with which is sort of a pragmatic non-cognitivist moral realist view of like the situation here and like that we we will totally do like a, a series on ethics um um but no like I think I think the interim period is the sketchiest period in this project you know what I mean is like society well, is stratified between like viewpoints yeah i or think that, I guess. yeah i wonder if that's like the sketchiest uh point in in this whole project that green and cohen are putting forth right because like i don't know dude it's it's it, like because it seems like obviously the system that we currently have is poor it's just sure. so poor do you know what i mean sure. yeah when was this paper written to 2004 2004 yeah yeah i mean it's still relevant so that's not all too relevant yeah it's all too relevant well oh so i okay um i had a tangential question but if if people wanted to stay on this point for a second more i will i'll I'll hold it Uh, i have i I, I will go give and go ahead (laughs) i was just gonna i mean i i don't know if it's quite tangential it seems to be kind of following from what we were just discussing i was just curious um what your guys's reactions were to like um, the points that the authors bring up um, in terms of like the rebuttals against like the pure consequentialism, um, right? Like mm. it may be the case that it might justify extreme overpunishing or even like a just purely consequentially in a broad sense, like a punishment for people who, you know, maybe did nothing wrong, but like the fact of the trial would. You know, be a positive force for society at large, um, and like the counterpoints that they think, bring up about deceptive practices being like impractical or in like the like. I'm curious where you, where you guys were pulled um, in that example. But if Jordan, if I you think, had a more consequent, uh, Brian, go ahead, Brian. I think I think consequentialism is kind of just shrouded, at least for me, in a in a in this in this kind of weird like you can it feels like it all depends on how you how you define the the best common good and i think through that definition i'm not sure definitively what the best action would be in every single scenario so it almost always since tends to just like mesh into this whatever make is the most like or, or, or so often is like whatever is like the most common sense thing to do. So I don't know what what are your thoughts on that? Where's like like consequentialism? What to do in each situation is like hard to define. Well, I think I think for me, and I, I think I speak for pretty much everyone on this podcast. It's like we all right. kind of have like consequentialist like tendencies when like assessing these situations. But at the same time, like I mean, I'm not speaking for Jordan in this sense, but like there are definitely issues to consequentialism, but I I think there are probably just more sophisticated models of viewing consequentialism, like just more sophisticated. um, Isn't that speaking for me? For me, I agree with that. No, because you already have one. Because you you probably are, I'm sure you've read papers on consequentialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We never have. Hmm. So so like it does like pull at my intuitions, but I just don't have because um, I mean, you, 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 I can, where I was the assess, strongest example where it pulled your intuition? I'm curious. I, well, I, I think with the one we just um, we just talked about where it's, it's a good uh, one. 
the um, over punishing. Mm. Like I, I, that I buy that immediately as a, as a weakness to consequentialism where, you know, um, would it benefit society at large if Chauvin was given 50 years in prison? Like, and, and if, let's say for the thought of experiment that it was he executed did, like on live television. Yeah. 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 You can push the envelope, open the yeah. doors of the Supreme court, execute him right there. Like, I mean, cause, <laughs> what are the consequences? Cause we could definitely kind of just like curtail the boundaries, you know, like in this thought experiment and say, okay, this doesn't speak um, to the society at large. Like this isn't like now a society that people are afraid they're going to be over punished. Like people recognize that this is like an isolated case and that this is like a symbolic, you know, um, you know, action here taken. And you can make it very specific. And yet you still look at that situation and think that a grave, there was a grave miscarriage of justice there. And I, I want to see if there are more sophisticated models of consequentialism that will actually kind of like tackle over punishment. Yeah. So, Pete, we will definitely do there's there's act and rule consequentialism and peter railton has this type of consequentialism that i'm really drawn to called sophisticated consequentialism um so we'll do we'll do like a series on that but brian your question is pointing to it's another famous like uh <clears throat> thought experiment in consequentialist reasoning called the three mile island problem where you know the chernobyl meltdown it's sort of like, okay, on the surface, that seems like it was obviously a bad thing. But if you tweak the subsequent consequences of that enough, it can actually looks like a, look like a good thing. Um, where if you say, you know, it, it could, like this, both accounts of this are plausible. Like that, um, that disaster actually will be like a, a motivating factor in getting nuclear energy to the point where it is safeguarded enough that we do actually trust and we do actually use it in which case it, it begins to look like the, you know, the three mile Island incident was actually a good thing, or it could turn out that um, the notoriety of that, you know, people knowing about Chernobyl influences the lay people's intuition so much that people continually vote against um, uh, nuclear energy being a, you know, like a green substitute uh, uh you know, for, for coal and like, you know, fossil fuels. So, so yeah, like that's, that's just to say that like, yeah, this is a really good, um, it's a good thing to keep in mind from when we do the ethics, but for this, I don't know. I mean, I, I sorry, I lost track a little bit of what we are talking about. Oh, honestly, for the purposes of this, the consequentialist punishment, um, I generally bought their retorts, generally speaking. Um, was there any instances where you didn't, or you thought they were weaker? The, so the problem is, is honestly, I haven't thought about all of this a lot because I think like the, the first main move that you have to get clear on is whether you do switch to a consequentialist basis or not. Right. Cause then the, a lot of the problem is like, once you, cause, cause a, the, the, the biggest problem that they point out in this paper. And unfortunately, nearly 20 years later, it's still true is we don't have this basis. You know what I mean? Because once you, cause e even if like, even if we go wrong on that basis pretty frequently, it's still going to be so much better than the retributive basis we have now. Right. So like, this is a little, this sounds a little cold hearted, but like I am okay with a little bit of collateral damage in the sense of getting things wrong if we were to switch. 
to a because because yeah, it is getting well when you say getting things <laughs> wrong are you referring to just like the over punishment tweaking or under you can imagine we'll we'll, ha- sure, we'll weigh okay. on the under punishments too we'll fail to punish someone in a way that doesn't well, i wasn't sure you if know? you were referring to like just inaccurate results or if you were referring to like false convictions being having positive oh. effects because that was mentioned in the first couple pages that's and a big are, can of worms no yeah. that, that was yeah. i read that i was like that's a big yikes to, like to that be honest betray, that really you know, yeah to, to be honest that actually has way more to do with straight up consequentialism than moral responsibility so i almost want to kind of hold off on that question totally fair yeah no that definitely piqued my interest though because once that was brought up and the author's like addressed it kind of he's like that's kind of unrealistic i was like is it but to, to be well to be fair to the authors that that isn't really in the scope of this paper so like I oh no i'm not blaming them yeah, yeah but yeah. amongst like their rebuttals <clears throat> to like the critical point that they brought up which is good that they you know brought them up to address mm. that one was like hmm like that that one stayed with me from page like you know two to the end <laughs> yeah it's a really good i mean there's a lot of really good questions in in consequentialism and honestly i know Absolutely. less about it than more responsibility but um the the question that I had for you guys is on it. It's it's honestly related to the to a lot of what we've already been talking about. But there's a question that stuck out for me throughout the paper too, and it's almost um. And again, it's larger than the paper, but we can look at one specific instance of it that shows up in the paper. So Green and Cohen kind of point out that this lay intuition that people have, this pre philosophical notion, is wrong. <laughs> right essentially let's angry libertarians email me again right but like we don't have contra causal free will right <clears throat> um but people think that we do or you know they have like people think that we're only a source of action never a result of action you might say right um and then <clears throat> This is kind of the duality of the title, right? So they say theoretically, actually, these these knowing more and more that the the brain is the source of our actions and neuroscience showing us that theoretically should have nothing to do with the law because it should have never hinged on that in the first place, right? Um, however, they point out that empirically speaking, people's intuitions do change. <clears throat> Excuse me, when you you know present cases of like, you know, the tumor or the, the brain device or whatever, right? So here's my question. And I, don't, I genuinely don't know what I think about this. People are starting off with the wrong views. Uh, and we're trying to move them to less wrong views. But we're, it seems like we're doing that when we use these intuition pumps. We're doing that in a way that's not theoretically upstanding in that it actually shouldn't matter. Like, how do I want to phrase this? I'm trying to kind of motion at something that I don't have fully worked out in my head here, but like, okay. So like these, the the lay intuitions, people don't believe the right thing in the first place, right? And we're trying to move them towards believing less of the wrong things, right? Getting them closer and closer to the non-retributivist basis. And we can kind of, I don't want to say trick, but we can get their intuitions to change by showing them all these cases. Oh, look at this. You know, like, don't, don't you know that when this happens, it's due to like this correlation in the brain and people are like, wow, okay. That, that actually, I didn't know that. And that changes, but, 
But that information shouldn't be the thing that's getting their mind to change because it should have never been that in the first place. So I don't know. Like, oh, no, I see what you're saying. Like, as you're getting them to change, you're also kind of getting them closer and closer to recognizing that it shouldn't matter. Yeah, but, but it's also like, there. it's like, like I, there's this weird kind of like Kantian impulse I have that like, not only should people believe the right things, but they should believe them for the right reasons. Do you know what I mean? And so like, when we're kind of getting people's intuitions to be pumped in these ways, it doesn't seem like we're really getting them to believe the right things for the right reasons. They're, they're believing more towards the right things. I don't know. Does that concern ring true to you guys at all? It, it this actually comes down to like cases of manipulation versus persuasion, you know, <clears throat> like, but, but are you concerned with the consequences <clears throat> of like the, the one versus the other? Yes. Um, but honestly, I also have a little bit of like a, um, I, I think I have an aesthetic objection to it, but, but I think it would get cashed out in consequences, right? Like it's not actually yeah, getting yeah. these people to reason in a, in a yeah, epistemically right. it robust suggests way. Some further problems down the line maker oh we we should definitely do an episode on evolutionary debunking arguments because this is like kind of (laughs) it's the same thing there yeah right like oh it's like this is kind of a debunking argument that green and cohen are making in a way right like they're saying you thought that people were merely sources not results but actually we can show you that people are results but in Mm -hmm. a way that but in a way that shouldn't matter because like responsibility doesn't hinge on people being results. Like we, like all of us know that, you know what I mean? <clears throat> like, of course there is some brain activity associated with anything like that. Like the real finding would be if no brain activity correlated with some change, <laughs> you know, like in a mental what state. What an awful finding just deep in a lab. You're looking at just like, like you've proved tri- triplicate data. <laughs> yes. Like that like is the brain has no, cor- none of things are firing just completely absurdly randomly. So like you, you guys might not be aware of these, but there are other dude, there are a ton of these papers published in, in social psych and cognitive psych and in experimental philosophy sometimes where you'll catch in the, in the GD, the, the general discussion, people always say these like very, very naive things. Like I remember there was one where there was like a behavior change. And in the general discussion, they were like, and we actually showed that there was a change in the brain associated with this you know, change. And everyone's like, wow, you know, it actually changes your brain. It was, it was a paper on meditation. Actually, they were like, you know, meditation actually changes your brain. And it's like, of course it does. The, the real finding is if it didn't change your brain, do you know what I mean? Like, so that seems to be a fallacious debunking argument when it's applied here, even though the conclusion is correct. I don't know. I just had like this weird kind of like, mm, little like, it was like a, a little qualm that stuck with me throughout the paper. But here's why it's a tension for me. Cohen and Green are totally right that people's minds don't get changed by the merely philosophical argumentation. Like, because, because people are bad reasoners. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? People will stick to it. Um, I don't know. Like, I Go don't... the gut. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I side Retributivism with... all the way. <laughs> it's retributivism all the way down. <laughs> I don't know. Like, are you at least catching... I don't have, like, a therefore of that, but do you catch that weird tension there, too? I think... Yeah, I no, I, 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 yeah, I agree it's underhanded. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, we're changing their intuitions on... Yeah, yeah in a way yeah, that I, we shouldn't be. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like... I, you know... 
Mm-hmm. I, I think if they were to do a little more than that, though, and indic- like if we really understood, um, like neurochemistry, say, right, mm-hmm. and we were able to like map pretty much like the particles that enter your brain and how they interact. That was you know presented I mean? in so, the paper, like the you can watch like a live feed, you know, of, <laughs> of every your brain. Single, yeah, yeah, every neuron, every you know, uh, neurotransmitter firing, mm-hmm. everything. Yeah, I, I think I think that's fine then to to change people's intuitions that way then, right? I mean, that would just indicate um, you were not an uncaused causer, right? Also. It would break down, you know, poor intuitions. But it, yeah. I, I think what Jordan was alluding to is like, maybe it's not a full enlightenment that's happening, right? And it's also like, well, because here's, if you and I are, like are presented with that, I'm just going to be like, well, yeah, of course, everything is determined in my brain. Like, I'm not concerned because that almost seems like you're it goes back to the wolf paper a little bit. Like when you just show people like we've mapped the brain, that's pretty close to trotting out the thesis of determinism generally. Whereas um, what I would be more concerned about are specific instances of being determined in the wrong way right? Like, so not a proper brain functioning, but like a proper brain functioning plus a brain tumor, then, oh, wow. Okay. So like, we have good reason to believe that caused this action, right? So like this person wasn't responsible for that act. You brought that back to like mechanism ownership, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it it's almost like we're using that intuition that Wolf kind of undercuts where we're almost trying to get, we're showing people individual instances of the truth of determinism generally, but it's like, but, but it really shouldn't hinge on that. But, but I'm not disputing Green and Cohen's empirical. Like they're right. Like empirically, that is what changes people's minds. Yeah. Once but, we get into discussions of law, it's very, very uh, be, like, different. We exactly. talk about society. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because the consequentialist leads to darker paths. You, you know. Uh, you know what it might come. I mean, honestly, it might be like it might be um, a very internally answerable question. It might be morally permissible to do that when in fact you would otherwise have to regress into like the objective attitude <laughs> like this like this person's not reasons responsive in the right way therefore it might be morally permissible to kind of intuition pump them in this way i don't know like so people aren't getting that retributivism doesn't make any sense on merely or purely philosophical reasoning so let's throw a little neuroscience in there let's throw a little cognitive psych in there I don't know. What do you think about that? Because without doing that, we would have to merely manage these people. But managing them, I guess, could take the form of this managing. I don't know. It's a slippery. It's like a very slippery uh, conclusion you come to. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, it's definitely underhanded either way. Oh, for sure. So, oh, for, I'm just I'm wondering if some but, underhandedness could be permissible. <laughs> consequentially yes yes exactly <laughs> oh a lot can be permitted consequentially if you can find some very niche examples that i think it would be a great point of discussion yeah Adam, i loved your example of the shoving case that was great to bring up oh well, thank you um oh shoot damn, damn, damn. Everything oh okay, yeah 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 oh I, I totally lost this but you know you, you guys had made me think about actually there was like a kind of related point that like um this entire, I was thinking about this question with respect to something else too. And I actually might cut this because I got to figure out if this paper has been written or not. But there's also this question of um, 
it's the same question with respect to this stuff, but with respect to religion. So you know how like there are, you can pluck Bible verses to get almost anything you want to. The Bible is a, like a schizophrenic text, right? <clears throat> sure. Well, I was thinking about this a lot actually. And it, cause it touches consequentialism and the objective attitude, more responsibility and, and like religion. It's just like a cool idea to think about. There's the same problem here wherein you're doing sort of a fallacious genealogical debunking with respect to like getting evangelical Christians to become moderate Christians whenever you, so like, okay, for instance, you know, you, you encounter like a, an evangelical Christian on, you know, picketing some like anti-gay protest or whatever. Right. Well, they, I guess they wouldn't be picketing an anti-gay pro they're like in the anti-gay protest. Right. <laughs> and so, so, you know, okay. So, you know, you take the objective attitude, this person's obviously not reasons responsive in the right way. Right. You know, you, you go up to them and instead of actually trying to convince them that God isn't real, or at least that their specific religion is wrong, you try to attenuate their views. So you quote verses from the Bible, you know, Jesus saying, you know, love every brother you know, in Christ or whatever, and, you know, treat, treat everyone equally under the law, trying to get people to like argue like that gay marriage should be legal, right? But yeah. you're, you're doing something that is consequentially good because you're let's 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 say you know you do actually move these people but you're doing it disingenuously because you can also pull from leviticus and deuteronomy you know stone he who is a homosexual <laughs> right so it's yeah. like i don't know i was just like it's a very it's something i've been kind of thinking about and i'm and i might be coming down on the conclusion that any case in which the objective attitude is like we we would be morally permissed to take that is a is a case in which this could be a form of the objective attitude. I don't know. I just thought there was like a very interesting case that relates to this. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely dishonesty in there, and I I don't yeah. I I don't know how. I mean, like it just relates to how does dishonesty like come out ethically yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly the consequentialism like, argument is going to be a must at some point oh yeah it, it, it works so it, well for like crazy thought experiments like how dark are you willing to take this you know yeah yeah it does seem pretty incomplete i so. know i know um but it also seems like way the better best. The, yeah <laughs> yeah i mean maybe I maybe consequentialism needs like a little bit of a frame but it's going to be the painting nonetheless. Yeah, I would love to do as many series on ethics because I've got some views that I've like kind of worked through in, in like my undergrad stuff. But obviously, like, I, you know, yeah, some grad work to be done for sure. Um, OK, sorry. Return to the paper. Um, did we have any outstanding uh, main questions with it? I think that 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 question specifically was one that I know that I had. I might just skim the margins. Um, I'm doing the same. Yeah, because they yeah they point out that retributivism hung on a bad thread in the first place, which was related to my question. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. Uh, well, okay. So you know, I'll mention it since we're um since you know I'd forgotten actually, Adam. This was kind of a question that you were asking about. Um. So this is in section two where they're talking about consequentialism and retributivism. And they were, you know, so they were talking about, I'll just quote them. One problem is that of draconian penalties. Is it possible, for example, that imposing the death penalty for parking violations would maximize aggregate welfare by reducing parking violations to near zero? But, retributive, but retributivists claim 
whether or not this is a good idea does not depend on the balance of costs and benefits. It is simply wrong to kill someone for double parking. And my response to that is like, okay, to the retributive, to the retributivist there, it's like, I actually don't know how you arrive at the principle. It is simply wrong to kill someone for double parking without yeah. respect that to consequences. Very in line with, that sounds very in line with what a retributist would say in terms of like, uh, that sounds like a retributist position where it's like you, you've done this wrong thing. Now you deserve retribution and scale of the retribution is really up to the given retributist. Yeah. And, and it also, it's, I mean, it's so that, so the, they're kind of talking about the contrapositive there, where it's you are not deserving of the death penalty merely for double parking. And that's almost like kind of a, I mean, they're viewing it as like a deontological duty. But like my response to the deontologist there is like, okay, how do you derive that principle like a priori without respect to consequences? Yeah, I mean, just the counterexample to that would be like consequentially, what if that, you know, prevented like, 10 billion deaths somehow you know through yeah. some absurd you know um machinery at well place, but... yeah you so so that's like that's another point too but i was even making a different point it's like mm. it, um in in informing and kind of excavating that moral principle i don't know how you do that a priori without respect to the consequences, consequences right yeah so so it's like it feels it's definitely an intuition um yeah yeah but like I, I'm going to intuition. This, I'm going to cut this too, but I wrote a paper in college that I want to revisit in like after I'm done applying and stuff. But I, but I argued that, um, and I don't know, maybe some form of this paper is, I'm sure it's been written, but like you guys are kind of generally aware of like Kantian moral philosophy. It's like deontological rules, essentially. Um, like I, I, it was kind of a genealogical debunking like argument I had in a paper, but like I, so I was arguing the only reason why people believe that at all is because following those rules does tend to produce good consequences. And if they didn't, those no one would actually believe those rules, but they're mistaken about the basis on which they believe them. It's not like this a priori armchair. Uh, it's about right. Yeah, yeah, it's because yeah. those, yeah. But I'll That's cut that too. Um, yeah, but that was that was one thing in the paper that I did think was worth kind of responding to because Cohen and Green don't address that. They they kind of um, and this isn't a critique, but they they almost like chase the retributivist down the rabbit hole. They're like, and okay, granting that this is the only way to like buttress this, you know, how would you respond? And I'm just saying, I don't even know how the retributivist or deontologist in this um, this example. I don't even know how they get to that principle without respect to the consequences, but. This is all grounds for a mini series on ethics. Well, wow, that probably won't be a mini series, but, but um, uh, okay. Anything else with the paper? I mean, I guess just one final thing is just, you know, I, I didn't like the fact that they said, you know, um, they, they gave this paragraph early in the paper, the standard consequentialist response to these charges is that mm. such concerns have no place in the real world. But then they kind of like agree with that at the end of the paper, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it's just not true. Like, I mean, you can actually look to countries like Singapore, right? Where they do have the death penalty. Like they do hang people there. I, Adam, um, I literally wrote Singapore yes, on like, my paper. I'm yes, not even for, joking. For like very, very minor, you know, bubblegum. Like, 
Isn't yes, that one I, of them? I, well, well, I I know they're they're maximum like penalties for chewing bubble gum, or Ooh. if you're caught with drugs, that could be life in prison or death. Wow. And have you and have you seen how fast mm. they've modernized? And I've met people from Singapore and talked with them, and they fully support it. So like, no, so like, Adam, so, I'm so, so glad is, you brought that up. That's yes, crazy. I've underlined yes. every single mm. time in this paper. I mean, it's very subtle, but like in that part two, like the same page uh, we were looking at just now, um, it says, <laughs> um, likewise, a legal system that deliberately convicted innocent people and or secretly refrained from punishing guilty ones would require a kind of systematic deception that would lead inevitably to corruption and that would never survive in a free society. But they kind of leave hanging the point. What about in an unfree society? We have <laughs> yeah. examples of those. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very mm-hmm. Western centric, which is why I thought the cultural angle would be interesting as well. Because I mean, yeah. I literally wrote down Singapore to this exact point, Adam. Yeah, I was like, what about yeah. bubble gum? Like, exactly, exactly. Because they like they they've responded mm-hmm. to me. You know, like, ha- have you seen what we've built like in the last thirty years? And like, there's no denying mm-hmm. it, right? Like, 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 like yeah. you look at Singapore, dark and consequentialism, just, <laughs> and, and it's just like, and it's like, okay, uh-huh. once again, it just seems like the you know, evaluating the consequences and like, this isn't, you know, some, um, this is an obvious claim, but it's just in the eye of the beholder, like how we assess the consequences here. Mm. So it, once yeah, again, it, yeah. Yeah, that's so I don't, I don't example, know. That, Adam, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. I just had to mention mm-hmm. that too. Mm, brings in questions of relativism and pluralism. Uh, yeah. It's all, it's, yeah, it's all good grounds. Um, I think in, um, <clears throat> yeah, like as a, so, so Sam Harris actually has, this is a point that I think he makes really well in his book, The Moral Landscape, because he, he makes the point that pragmatically, you know, you might actually have to go through a peak to reach a valley. And I wonder if the Singapore example is a valley that they had to go through to reach a peak, like maybe given that culture at that time and those constraints. I don't know. It's like not obviously not true. Yeah, I, there is a good question also. It's like, you know, is that if this is kind of like a valley, like will they eventually loosen up a bit or is this like just the mm. framework for society here yeah and like there's just indefinitely going forward like that this <laughs> yeah. is like the 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 goal of like the you know structure of law yeah and is the good of having certain freedoms that are not admitted in that society outweighing the costs that would incur by yeah it's just yeah, yeah. okay that does sound very subjective and it certainly is in like poles and such between yeah. like west and east yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> okay, good. I, we I, we we actually raised a lot of interesting questions in this uh, in this in this great podcast. paper choice. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it's really not a long paper. Um, no. Well, it's you know it's longer than the page count makes you think it is. Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because the font is small and the spacing is narrow. And I was told five pages instead it was ten. Like <laughs> double column. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, me desperately reading the last ten minutes before the podcast. <laughs> that was a joke. We knew. <laughs> I actually wasn't doing that. But... <laughs> Don't lie for the sake of consequences. <laughs> I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I'm a pure retributivist. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? Um, you know what we should definitely do. Um, as a paper to kind of conclude this series is a paper on because the reason I say to conclude is because I might actually have to ask a few people what paper to read but we should do a paper on restorative justice I've mentioned this before but but it might given what Adam has said in this um, episode so far I I 
think that Adam might really like restorative justice, maybe in and of itself, but at the very least as something, as maybe a bridge in between the current system we have now and then more of a consequentialistly justified one. Yeah, so we should, yeah okay, we yeah. should definitely do a paper on that. I'll have to ask uh, a certain philosopher I know who's like really into it about if there's like a good just base paper to read about yeah, for it. Sure. Sounds um, great. <clears throat> okay, cool. Uh, well then, yeah, so, so, uh, I don't know what the next episode will be on, but, um, hopefully join us next time, uh, for that.